continue this morning in the book of Job. If you're a visitor here this morning, this is year four for us in the book of Job. We kind of come here every uh, winter and spring, and uh, we are, uh, Lord willing, going to end this book this year. Uh, If you're not aware of the book, most of the book, or the largest part of the book, is a conversation between a man named Job who has experienced some tremendous suffering, and three friends who have tried to help Job understand why he suffers. And over the course of that conversation, we see that those three friends have a viewpoint that is not the viewpoint of God. They have come to the conclusion that Job is suffering because God is punishing him. Well, the Bible tells us that is not the case. And because that's not the case, it leaves Job unable to really explain why he is suffering. And as the book has continued on, Job has started to come to certain conclusions. And then after the course of these conversations are over, we meet a young man by the name of Elihu who waits for the whole thing to essentially be over before he speaks. And we find out that this man is acting as sort of a prophet. He's here to prepare Job and the friends for the arrival of God in chapter 38. Elihu gives four speeches. We are on the third one this morning. As I mentioned last week, the first two speeches, uh, the I'm sorry, the second and third speech of Elihu really speak to the heart of what he wants to say to Job. Last week we saw that the second speech was really centered around the question that Job had after all that he has gone through to ask whether or not God is fair. Is God just? Is God good? And Elihu, as we talked about, uh, responds and gives the answer. Of course he answers, yes, God is just, God is good. But Elihu takes it further and says, look, the answer is yes all the way to the bottom. The answer is yes all the way to the foundations of who God is and how this world is run. And now in the third speech, he's going to answer a th- the third and final question that Job has put out there. And that question is summarized for us in the first four verses of our text this morning. We could say it this way. We could say, Job is asking Elihu, how am I better off than if I had sinned? We could put it a different way. He's asking if even the innocent suffer. If even a righteous man like Job is going to suffer, what good is being good? What advantage do I have following the Lord? Now, if you may not remember, but two years ago, we, in this cycle of speeches between Job and his friends, one of the friends attempted to answer this question. And his answer to Job was, the good is in the things that God will give you if you obey. He was trying to claim, Job, if you would just confess your sins, do good deeds, God would bless. And we saw how this is the, uh, this is one of the foundational ideas of what is known as the prosperity theology, the health and wealth gospel. The idea that if you obey God, then you are going to be blessed with health, with wealth, or some form of prosperity. And we saw The Bible so very clearly teaches that that is a false gospel, that is a false teaching. 
as I studied this past week, I ran into a number of different ways people have tried to answer the question, what good is it being good? Now, for uh, some people, it's about a, a belief in a, in a divine point system. Well, what's the good of being good? Well, if I do enough good things and I do more good things than I do bad things, then I earn enough points so that when I stand before God, he's going to let me into heaven because I've done enough good. And so the point of being good is the reward of getting to go to heaven. And we've talked many times about how this doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches and certainly does not fit with the message of the gospel. And there are those out there who believe that what... What good is it being good is found in the answer of God's supply of what we would probably describe as self-esteem. That the, the, the reason that we should do good things is if we do good things, then we're going to feel better about ourselves. And so it really kind of makes a Jesus who is here so, to, so as to validate you. The Christian life is really about so that you can feel good, that you can have your best life now. But again, if we search the scriptures, we would find that that is not the good that God points us to as to why or what good is being good. And all that to say is that the world around us and many Christians even struggle to answer this question. And so it is a certainly a, a, a needful question to encounter. Elihu is going to answer the question. But as we noted at the end of chapter 33, Elihu's desire for Job is not just to answer his question, but to teach Job, to help Job. To, to put him in a place where he is ready or more ready for the arrival of God. And so Elihu is going to give two answers to this question. What good is it being good? And the first answer really doesn't directly answer the question, but it is a needful foundation to the answer. And that is, number one, he is going to say God is transcendent. In order to answer this question, Elihu has to take Job to the reality or to the truth that God is transcendent. Now the word transcendent is, is just simply means that God is both far away and far different than human beings. In verse 5, Elihu explains it by telling Job to consider the clouds. It would be like this, he's saying to Job, Job, if it was raining right now, and you chose to do evil instead of good, would that mean it was going to stop raining? Or he could be saying to Job, Job, look at the clouds, watch them move from east to west. If you chose to do evil instead of good, would they stop moving from east to west? He's trying to help Job understand that there is no change in the weather. There is no change in the cloud patterns based upon how Job is going to behave. And, and he's trying to help Job understand that this is how it is with God. Because God is far away. There is this gap between us and God. Verses 6 through 8, again, trying to teach Job, he drives this point deeper. He wants to get Job face to face with the reality of God's transcendence. And so in verse, uh, in verse 6, he takes him to this fact that God is unchangeable. 
The, uh, the theological word there is impasse, I am impassibility. It means that God, uh, there is nothing that can impact God in such a way as to create lack. It means that God is not changed through emotional manipulation. He is not moved because he is overwhelmed. He is not taken off guard because he is surprised. That's the point of the question in verse 6. If you have sinned, what have you accomplished against him? Or if you sin a whole bunch, what do you do to him? It's very similar to the question found in Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they plot empty things? What do they think is going to happen? Do they really think they're going to overthrow God? Elihu is trying to get Job to understand how Job does and does not behave, does not cause God to respond in any way God does not want to respond. Now, how is that different than us? Well, as human beings, you and I are at the mercy of anything changing. In a handful of days, my wife is going to be gone for 10 days. Believe you me, we are going to be impacted by that change. Somebody might show up in the middle of the week, find me rocking myself in a corner somewhere. <laughs> if you get a cold, how many of you have ever watched your spouse have an entire personality change because they got a cold? A good snowfall, how does that impact your week? All of a sudden, you are home from school. All of a sudden, you can't get to that doctor's appointment. You've run out of bread. See, the, the point here is that there's nothing. When things change, there's nothing you and I can do about it. All of it impacts us. It impacts the way we live, the way we exist. This is not the case with God. He moves on to verse 7. He wants to point Job not only to the fact that God is impassable or unchangeable. He wants Job to be confronted with the fact that God is unchanging. The word there, the theological term would be immutable. It means that God in his essence does not change. He does not have need to change. That's the question in verse 7. If you're righteous, what do you give to him? What does he receive from your hand? What is, some, what is the need in God that you're taking care of? Now, we have to be careful here. Elihu is not, is not teaching Job that what he does doesn't matter. He's not trying to say that how we do or do not behave does not cause, uh, is not important. He's trying to say to Job that how we do or do not behave does not add or take anything away from God. And the idea is, is that we don't ever get to gain leverage. Again, what is, how is that different than us? Well, as human beings, you and I, we're needing to change. We're always changing. This past week, my daughter went to see the doctor. A couple of weeks ago, she had seen the doctor. She had a double ear infection. She went back this week. The doctor wanted to see something had changed. Teachers at school, this is what they want from you. Whether it's a professor in college or a high school teacher, they want you to change. They want you to go from being able to not do or not being able to do algebra to being able to do algebra. They want change every four to six hours. Perhaps if you're a teenage boy, maybe it's every one and a half hours. We get hungry. Every 14 to 16 hours, we get tired and we need to sleep. We need to wash. We need glasses. 
And because we're constantly changing, we find ourselves constantly in need. And the whole system of markets is built on this. Because we have gaps. We have places where we're weak. We run out of meat. Our glasses need to be fixed. The water pressure goes out. But this is not how God is. He does not change in his essence. He never has any need to change. And the point that Elihu's making to Job is this, to ask the question, what good is being good, or what good do I get by being religious, or what good do I get by being spiritual, is actually the wrong question. Because it disregards the reality of the transcendence of God. So you see, there's, there's no saying to God, look, Lord, I've stopped sinning today. Isn't your day better? Now what are you going to do? There's no saying to God, look, God, at this good deed that I did, now you owe me. Now, what does that have to do with our suffering? What does this have to do with Job's suffering and the suffering that we experience? Well, really, the answer is, in one word, hope. In Deuteronomy, let me explain it this way. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, there's a verse there that most of us, if we've read through our Bible, probably zoom right past. And it's just a simple phrase, and it says that God doesn't take a bribe. And the explanation is, is because he doesn't need to. It's because he is self-sufficient. So what does that mean for us? What's the point that the, the, the text in Deuteronomy is making? And what is the point that Elihu is making? Let me put it this way. Let's say you and another person in this church are both suffering. What Elihu is saying to Job is God, the, the person who put more money in the offering plate doesn't get more of God's attention. Because he is self-sufficient, God doesn't pay more attention when you're struggling and you haven't been able to be a part of church ministry as much. You don't get left out of the blessing because you have a tendency to struggle. Well, it seems like everybody else has their act together. And the reason for that is because God is transcendent. Or to put it a different way, it means that God's tenderness towards you is not based on you. This doesn't lead to a lack of passion from God. This leads to perfect passion. It means that his love for you cannot be shaken loose. This is the rebuke of Job. Job wanted, or the way that Elihu is saying, to ask this question is to want a God that moves and acts and blessed based on your good behavior. And to desire a God like that is to actually desire something less than God. Because a God like that doesn't have time for widows and orphans. Why would a God like that ever save a poor man in China? when more middle-class Americans would get him more money? Or perhaps more personally, why would he ever save you? Because certainly there are people with more talent. And certainly there are people who don't mess up as much as you do. His transcendence is our security. And it speaks to the great need in our life that we have mentioned many times. 
the need for something beyond us. You see, we experience the fact that this world is broken. And we experience it in big ways and in little ways. We experience it when our car breaks down. We experience it when we're facing terminal illness. And if you've ever been through it, you know that you can't always understand it. You, you know that you can't outsmart it. You've probably looked back at times and realized that, that these things have caused you to be unstable. And all of that speaks to the need for something or someone who is transcendent. Because only there will you find true healing. Elihu's point to Job is that the transcendence of God means there is a transcendent hope. But having laid the foundation to give the answer, he now comes to the answer. What advantage is there to be good? And the answer is point number two. That seeing God, not gifts, is the highest good. Seeing God, not gifts, is the highest good. Verse 9 Elihu gives a general description of these types of moments. The type of moment that Job is having, this kind of suffering. It's, it's, he describes it in such a way that hopefully all of us can kind of relate. He describes it as something bad happening and people crying out to God. It's the idea that people want God to come to their rescue. Something bad has happened and so they want God to show up with his strength. Now, again, he is not trying to describe all situations. He's trying to describe things that are similar to Job's situation. This is what Job has done. Something bad has happened. He has cried out to God. But in Job's situation, it feels as though God has done nothing. And the question that Job is wrestling with is perhaps God is not doing anything because I haven't made enough deposits of good deeds. Maybe I haven't warranted God's attention or help. So in verses 10 through 15, Elihu is going to drive this deeper. And Elihu is going to say to Job, there are those in those times when we cry out, but we are not crying out in faith. And then he, he explains it in verse 10. He says, nobody says or nobody is crying out, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night? And the point that Elihu is saying to Job is that people cry out for God's power, but they do not cry out for God. They want the advantage of God, but they don't want a personally invested God. In the phrase there, where is God my maker, implies a personal investment. What The word is actually that of sewing and knitting. But they don't want a personally invented, uh, invested God. This phrase, song in the nights, is the idea of comfort. They want comfort, but they don't want the God of comfort. Verse 11, we find out this God elevates humanity above the beast by giving them wisdom and knowledge. We want wisdom and knowledge, but we don't want the God who teaches. Our New Testament puts it a very different way. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible tells us two things are simultaneously true. Human beings cry out to a God 
but they will not seek after the God. They will make gods and idols out of anything they can get around them, whether it's clay or wood or significant others or large houses. They will worship created things, but they will not, they will refuse, they will rebel from worshiping the Creator. In 2 Corinthians, the Bible describes it this way. There are two kinds of sorrow. There is the experience of difficulties of life that drive us, that cause us to run to God. And then there's the sorrow sorrow that produces nothing. We're just sad it happens. We just wish the consequences would go away. We don't want God. In verses 13 to 16 in our text, the key word or the key idea there is empty. To cry out to God but not want God is an empty cry. To say, I want the arm of God without the nearness of God is an empty thing. It is to want something that is empty. And the point that Elihu is driving at here is that this is never about being good enough, Job. It's about needing the grace of God. Elihu's answer is uniquely biblical. No other faith, no other sacred book teaches that God is both absolutely transcendent and perfectly near. Go back again to verse 10. Crying out to God, my maker, who gives songs in the night. This is a, uh, Elihu, I think, is relying on this because this is a phrase that Job has used. Job has described his suffering as a type of night. See, for many people, the nighttime is the most terrible part of the day. Why? Because when the sun goes down and it's dark out, you don't know if anybody who wants to do you harm is slowly approaching your house. Suddenly the, the area gets quiet and all of a sudden you can hear the noises perhaps that your, your house has been making all day, but now you can actually hear them and now you wonder what's that. Or perhaps you put your head on the pillow and you have thoughts of worry or thoughts of regret. The nighttime is not a, des- a, a, a designation of something good, but something terrifying. But to put it in contrast to singing is interesting. Because in the, in the Bible, singing comes with the reaping of a good harvest. Singing comes with the birth, a, a positive birthing experience for the livestock. Singing comes for weddings and feast days. Singing comes when babies are born or when people gather together to worship. Singing is something you do when you're happy, not when you're terrified. This is a God who gives songs in the night. In the dark places, there is joy. A joy that is not based on whether or not you have done a good job. Not based on whether or not you are good enough, but a joy based on the gracious nearness of God. Elihu has laid out for us the very basis of our salvation. The transcendence and nearness of God. God, the universal God, putting on flesh and walking among us. The God who is not like us, coming to serve us. The God whom we are accountable to. The one who rules the universe. The one who judges is the one who sent his son to pay for our sins. 
This is a God who applies that salvation not by works, not by good things we've done, but salvation by grace through faith. It is a song in the night. Now, every person here encounters the night, don't we? Whether it be times of financial difficulty, emotional distress, physical pain, we find ourselves in the night. Or perhaps, at least at this point in your life, you're maybe walking with somebody who is traveling through the night. Let me give you some truth. There are places to go to feel better. There are sweet words out there. There are words and ways to be comforted, but there is nowhere else to find a song. Someone can sit across my desk, and many have, and I can try as hard as I want to, but I cannot squeeze out a song. But let God get near in the night. Let him whisper in your ear. And you find out that real hell is if he was to ever leave again. And real paradise can be found in the harshest of moments when he is near. The psalmists grab this truth over and over again, describing the idea of an enemy that is physically near but far away from God, and the psalmist who is far away from physical safety but is near to God and then declares himself the one in the better position. Elihu is teaching Job and teaching us to ask, what advantage do I have in being good is to ask for too little. It is the famous quote of C.S. Lewis, to be content to play in mud puddles when the sea is 10 feet away. Why would anybody want a God of works over the God of grace? And so we see in this question, what good is it being good, is really just a scoffer's question. It's really a counterfeit question. Because it doesn't take into account the transcendence of God. The fact that he doesn't change, the fact that he cannot be changed, means that he has perfect passion for you. It is the transcendent God who is able to love the world that he gives his only son. And it means that when we experience the brokenness of this world, we have a hope that is not tied to this world. We have a transcendent hope. And this question also does not take into account our need for the nearness or the grace of God. Because it is only the grace of God that sends God's only Son that we may believe in Him and not perish but have eternal life. It is only by the grace of God that there can ever be songs in the night. Let's pray. Father, As we face the sufferings and difficulties of our life, let us remember the transcendence of God. Let us never settle for something that is less than God. Let us find our hope in the fact that he is not moved. He is not changed by how good or how bad, how much we struggle, how how little we struggle. He is transcendent and therefore our hope is transcendent. And Father, I pray we would always desire the greater thing, the grace of God. 
Never settle for the, for what is less than God himself, for that is the great good. And I pray this would be what we look to, not the question of whether or not we're good enough, but to the reminder that God is transcendent and he is grace. And may we find our comfort there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.